Hello, welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. I'm recording this on Valentine's Day, uh, but by the time you hear it, it'll probably be after Valentine's Day, but I hope everybody had a nice Valentine's Day. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different than what I typically do for a solo episode. Usually when I do a solo episode, it has a little bit more of a single focus. It's a little bit of a narrower focus than our typical Media Roots Radio episodes um, when Abby joins me. But today, this episode is going to be a little bit more, the content of it is going to be a little bit more like a typical Media Roots episode because there's just been a lot of shit happening that it's hard to pick a subject that's really worth delving into out of out of all these different subjects that I plan to talk about today. But just to give you a little recap of what's been happening, there's been a lot of interesting news having to do with Israel, Israeli uh, bombings happening in Syria, but also Netanyahu's own government in Israel is facing a serious, serious corruption indictment. And the Israeli police uh, today announced that they believe that the best option would be to detain and arrest Netanyahu, which is pretty incredible. So there's a, there's something really interesting brewing there that's barely getting any coverage in the U.S. media. Um, and I'll, I'm just going to start this podcast with with what's going on there and also delve into a little bit of, of sort of these borderline World War III-like scenarios um, that keep popping up. And uncoincidentally, they have to do with Israel. There was also news uh, that came out recently that was a surprise to me. Other people I've talked to who have been following Israel very closely, they already knew about this. This is the first time I heard about it, is that Israel actually works with the Egyptian government to conduct drone strikes in their country. So Israeli drone strikes are happening in Egypt sort of on a semi-regular basis with Egypt's government's permission, which just kind of blew my mind that that that, that happens. But as we already know, there are Syrian bombing runs that Israeli uh, fighter jets are going on. And so this just happened four days ago. What's really creepy about this is there's so many different opposing factions in Syria right now, including the Iranian government allied with Assad and the Russian side of things. Basically, there's a kind of a proxy war happening in Syria right now between Iran and Israel, which is just not getting any coverage at all. So, for example, in The Guardian, uh, this is reported uh, four days ago. It says, Israel launches a large-scale attack in Syria after fighter jet crashes. Israel has launched what it described as a large-scale air raid in Syria after one of its F-16 fighters crashed while under Syrian anti-aircraft fire. That's interesting that they don't say shot down, specifically. I'm, I'm wondering why the wording on that is different. Because originally when I read this, it, it seemed as if and I can't remember if it was an Israeli government press release that said it was shot down or not, but that was the original headline I remember reading. So this is odd, and I'm wondering if this is just the Guardian's author's own wording or if this means something else sort of changed in the spin of this story. I'll, I'll delve into that a little bit later once I figure it out. But continuing, the article says, 12 sites, including four Iranian targets near the Syrian capital, Damascus, were destroyed in the raid. 
According to an Israeli military spokesman, Jonathan Conricus, it was not immediately clear whether there were any casualties. Wow. Yeah, this just is very, very um, intense. And I'm just surprised this isn't getting more coverage. Um, The Stormy Daniels Trump thing seems to be getting way more coverage than this, as well as a terrible school shooting in Florida today where 17 people, uh, students in the high school, apparently died Basically, the reason I brought that up is because the media is not talking about this at all. And I think this is huge news. It says that the Israeli F-16 was was originally shot at as it returned on Saturday morning from a raid to destroy Iranian facilities accused of launching a drone strike into Israel. Sorry, launching a drone into Israel, not a drone strike. Both pilots managed to eject and landed in Israel. One was badly injured. It was not clear if the jet was hit or if the pilots abandoned the plane. Syrian state news claimed its air defense had struck at least two jets. The Israeli military denied more than one plane had been hit. Saturday's violence was one of the most severe incidents involving Israel, Iran, and Syria during Syria's seven-year-old civil war. It is believed to be the first time Israel has lost a jet in the conflict. Yikes. Wow. Um, And then, of course, the Iranian government responded with reports of downing of an Iranian drone flying over Israel and also Iran's involvement in attacking an Israeli jet are so ridiculous. Apparently, that's a quote from Bahram Qasimi. He said Iran only provided military advice to Syria. I mean, the the, the scary thing about this is this basically, they're, they're trying to blame, there's a lot of trying to blame Iran for things happening in different world conflicts right now. First, you saw the Saudi Arabian government announce, along with the U.S. government, with Nikki Haley, announced that Iran was launching missiles, basically, by proxy into Saudi Arabia through the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Now we're hearing the Israeli government saying that that Iran is playing with fire. They're basically trying to provoke a war. And if this is made up, I don't know if it's true or not if Iran sent a drone into Israel. To me, that would seem crazy on Iran's part to do that. I mean, is there any evidence that that happened? The Israeli government is acting like this is a provocation of war. And it's very, very dangerous. And and the same uh, spokesperson, the IDF spokesperson, Jonathan Conricas, has been continuing to say, we know this is an Iranian drone. We know that that they tried to attack Israeli territory. The IDF's military spokesman, General Ronan Manilis, said Israel held Iran directly responsible for the incident. He said, This is a serious Iranian attack on Israeli territory. Iran is dragging the region into an adventure in which it doesn't know how it will end, he said. Whoever is responsible for this incident is the one who will pay the price. Of course, Israel let off rocket alert sirens in the Israeli-held Golan Heights. Flights to Israel's international airport near Tel Aviv were briefly suspended. And then the article ends with talking about Netanyahu, which is what I'm going to go into next in this indictment he's facing. Uh, it says, On Tuesday, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu paid a rare visit to the Israel-Syria front and warned Israel's enemies not to test its resolve. He did not mention by name Iran or its Lebanese militia ally Hezbollah, both main players in Syria's civil war. I mean... This is a very, very, very dangerous situation that you have Israel basically trying to drag Iran into some kind of conflict with them. I mean, this is obviously what's happening here. Iran is the prize. 
it is the neocon sort of Likudnik prize. And I don't really have to make much of an argument for that. That's been made, that's obvious, uh, been made obvious time and time again in sort of the neoconservative worldview in PNAC, even people like James Woolsey and um, John Bolton, serious hardcore neocons who were PNAC uh, signatories, um, their point of view is that Assad is, you know, if we leave him in power and we don't really go after him, that's okay because as long as we cut off the head of the snake, and they've actually used that terminology in Iran, then Assad will fall. So they're already looking at it with like a long-term point of view. And that's part of the reason why certain neocons are not that fixated on overthrowing Assad anymore, because they're pivoting more towards Iran now. And all of the signs are going there. Not only is the Israeli government trying to start a war with Iran over this probably made up drone incident, and also trying to claim that Iranians are the ones who shot down the, the jet in Syria, even though in this article it doesn't use the term shot down. There's all these other forces, Pompeo, Mike Pompeo of the CIA released those bin Laden files, selective selective leaks trying to imply within the big bulk of leaks that bin Laden and al-Qaeda were working with the Iranian government. We have a lot of moves being made right now that are very, very scary. Um, there was even talk that Tom Cotton, the guy who was concocted the anti-Iran deal letter, might replace Pompeo at the CIA. Now, I mentioned this on the last podcast, but Tom Cotton is Bill Crystal's puppet funded to the tune of $2 million from one of Bill Crystal's Isra uh, Emergency Committee for Israel think tanks. That's a fact. Joe Crystal, Bill Crystal's son, works directly under Tom Cotton. He's one of his top staffers. So it is very bizarre how, you know, Trump's own base can have this perception that he's anti-neocon, even though he's super buddy-buddy with Israel, with Saudi Arabia, that Tom Cotton might actually slip into the administration somehow because there's a lot of evidence that they're buddies that Trump and Tom Cotton are actually buddies. This is all very, very upsetting that his base still thinks he's somehow not a neocon or he's not favorable to the neocons. And I think they get that illusion because a lot of the resistance types, the Democrat people who are still, still wanted Hillary in office, a lot of those types of people have allied themselves with anti-Trump neocons. So there is this false perception out there that the neocons are still in opposition to Trump. But the military-industrial complex, ultimately, the neocons for them are, are kind of their best salesmen. But if the military-industrial complex can get these huge boons from the Trump administration, huge record-breaking profits, and this many trillions of dollars injected into our nuclear infrastructure, into our defense budget, then they've kind of cut out the middleman. I mean... If Trump is doing that, he is doing the things the neocons want. And the military-industrial complex is thrilled with, with what's going on. So if you're only anti the neocons, the faces, but you're okay with the military-industrial complex exploding, um, and it's, I mean, really a lot of these people in Trump's base, they are fixated on personalities. Like they think that Anthony Weiner is the you know, most important thing to talk about for six months, or Huma Abedin, for example. You know, and I'm not saying the other side doesn't do this too, but it's really, really sad when it's just all about Bill Crystal, you know, and David Frum and, and the way that Tucker Carlson, you know, clobbered Max Boot and almost made him cry. Look at how good of a job he did beating his ass. I mean, Tucker Carlson is a fucking military industrial complex fucking shill. Not to mention that he used to say he wanted to annihilate Iran. 
on Fox News to millions of people. The only reason I'm getting so distracted by Tucker Carlson is because if you don't want to see people like David Frum and and Bill Kristol rebrand as these resistance characters, don't help Tucker Carlson rebrand either. Don't do it. Yeah, I would say on a comparison chart, David Frum and Bill Kristol are far worse than Tucker Carlson. However, he's a fucking left-hating, bashing piece of shit that all he does is he goes on there and just tries to make leftists look foolish um, with his mouth agape. And he used to be a neocon. He's not... A lot of these people on Fox News like to play this pretend game like they're libertarians and they're anti-big government. They're all fucking phonies, including Kennedy and even Judge Napolitano. I'm sorry, they're not... You know, they're not even libertarians. Lori Ingram even pretends she's a libertarian. Now, yeah, I know a lot of people on the left think fascist is the same as libertarian, but I don't... I'm not that one of those kind of people. I, I actually make a distinction between seasoned you know, long-term principled anti-imperialist libertarians and actual just partisan right-wingers. So unfortunately, a lot of people on the left do not make that distinction. Um, and that, I think, is a shame. And no, I don't think most of them are secret racist or fascist like David Duke. I don't, I don't believe that. Other people on the left do. I don't personally believe it. But let's get to this Netanyahu indictment, because this is interesting that this is, this is all building up right now while Netanyahu is facing this serious uh, legal repercussions. So just to really emphasize this, this is on CNN website. Now, things on the CNN website, you know, yeah, it's mainstream news. It's on the it's on the major news website. However, I haven't seen this on television at all, or listen, or heard it on the radio. And I think for most people who pay attention to the news, that's actually how most people get it. So. Just because it's on the website doesn't mean my point is invalid, that this is not... So on CNN yesterday, it was reported that Israeli police said Tuesday there is sufficient evidence to indict Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on criminal charges in two corruption cases. According to a police statement published late Tuesday, authorities found evidence of accepting bribes, fraud, and breach of trust. In a televised statement, Netanyahu said the allegations against him would be dismissed, there will be nothing because there is nothing, he said. Sounds, sounds kind of like Trump. In a statement given moments before police issued their official findings, he said, I think about the good of the country, not for personal reasons of the press, but only for the country. And nothing will stop me from doing this, not even the attacks against me. And believe me, they're never ending. And therefore, today isn't different from any other days which I've been through in the past 20 years. When asked whether the U.S. had any reaction to the police statement, State Department spokesman Heather Neur... Narette said, the only thing I have to say about that is the United States has very strong relationship, not only with Netanyahu, but also the Israeli government. We are certainly aware of it, but we consider it to be an internal Israeli matter. (laughs) Wow. So these are the two criminal indictments, investigations that Netanyahu is a suspect in, one known as Case 1000 and another one known as Case 2000. Uh, CNN goes on to say, in case 1000, Netanyahu is suspected of having received gifts from businessmen overseas totaling 1 million shekels, approximately $280,000, including cigars, champagne, jewelry, and more. The case has focused primarily on Netanyahu's relationship with Israeli billionaire and Hollywood producer Arnon Milchin. In exchange for the gifts, police say, Netanyahu tried to advance a tax break that would have benefited Milchin, though he was blocked by the finance ministry. According to suspicions, the prime minister worked to advance the extension of a tax waiver for returning citizens over 10 years. 
So that one, you know, by itself sounds like a traditional bribing scandal. It's more, maybe a little more unsettling because this is a Hollywood producer named Mr. Milchin. Arnon Milken. Jesus Christ, sorry. Let me, I'm going to actually look up what, what films he's done, what films he has produced. Um, it says they have had a relationship since 2000. So he's produced everything from Big Mama's House, Freddy Got Fingered, Black Knight, Unfaithful, Daredevil, The Girl Next Door, Man on Fire, Electro, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, The Sentinel, Just My Luck, My Super Ex-Girlfriend, The Fountain, Jumper, Shudder, Trying to find anything in here overtly pro-Israel. <laughs> Let me, I'm, I'm looking, hold on. I mean, sure there's something in here that I'm probably just not aware of. Wow, that's interesting. So Noah was produced by this guy, and I just watched that movie and the whole time I was watching it, I was kind of thinking, wow, this is a strange movie. This is not, would not be appealing to Christians. It wouldn't even be appealing to Jews who are into the Old Testament or the, the Torah. And it also wouldn't appeal to atheists either because it's, it's very religious. It's a very strange movie. I mean, actually, I recommend watching Noah because it's rare to see a Hollywood tentpole, big budget movie quite as abstract and weird as Noah. But anyways, yeah, that, that that didn't really turn up much. I mean, it was kind of a lazy, lazy dive on my part to try to, I mean, but it's, it is interesting that how many of these Hollywood film producers are somehow associated with the Israeli government. This is something that a lot of people have touched on in the past. This was especially prominent in the late 80s and 90s. I think a lot of that relationship started back then, but there's a lot more you can read about you know, having to do with that, um, the the Israeli government's in, uh, involvement in Hollywood productions and just Hollywood producers' own loyalty to the Israeli government. Been quite a lot written about that subject. But what's more interesting than this case one thousand? You know, this is a Hollywood producer, so, somewhat interesting. This is this is just straight up mafia shit, old school mafia shit that Netanyahu is involved in, which is not a surprise at all. Not a surprise. In case 2000, police say Netanyahu discussed bartering with Arnon Noni Moses, the owner of one of Israel's leading newspapers, Yediath Aronoth, which is regularly critical of the prime minister. In exchange for more favorable coverage, Netanyahu promised to hamper the circulation of a rival newspaper and recordings obtained by police. In this framework, what was discussed was the assistance of Mr. Moses to Netanyahu in establishing his stature as prime minister through positive coverage that in return for the prime minister assisting Mr. Moses in advancing economic interests by an initiative to block the strengthening of the rival newspaper. Can you imagine a police, like a police report being filed in our country about like Trump or Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton, anything remotely like this? This is like kind of fascinating that this is what's happening in Israel right now. Both Moses and Netanyahu have said that these were not serious discussions. Rather, they were claimed they were trying to expose the other's lack of trustworthiness. That's very clever. That's a very clever alibi. Police say there's enough evidence to indict Moses on charges of offering bribes. In an effort to deflect blame, Netanyahu has lashed out, attacking the police, the media, the opposition, and the left. Of course, that's one of the things that Abby was uh, talking about last time is because they know that leftists in, in some ways is the main opposition they have to their fucking apartheid state. The right wing people across the world aren't going to give a shit if they have an open air prison. They hate leftists. They really do. CNN continues to say, 
He has often called the investigations against him fake news, echoing the language of Donald Trump. Last week, Israeli police chief Roni Alshish, in an interview with Israeli's Kashat News Channel, said powerful elements were sniffing around investigators working on the Netanyahu case. Firing back, Netanyahu said he was shocked by the insinuations that he had sent private detectives to tail police. Wow. Wow. This is really fascinating. I mean, it's it's squirreliness uh, just on the highest order. It's fascinating the way a politician like Netanyahu can operate. I mean, hats off to him for having the, the balls big enough to act this fucking crazy. But let's see what happens. I mean, maybe maybe he will be arrested. That would be nuts. It's really interesting that, you know, there's all these organizations sort of taking a step back from this and just letting it play out in Israel. But what happens if he is arrested? The problem is, and I'm reading in more articles, that the Israeli attorney general will have to be the one to bring down an indictment ultimately. And that's sort of the problem. I mean, look what happened with Eric Holder after the Obama administration got in. The more that I read about this, it's probably not going to happen. But it's interesting that it's actually gotten this far that the Netanyahu government wasn't able to quash it earlier. So I promised I would um, give my feedback and some of my opinions on this Chank Uger, Kyle Kalinske debate about Russiagate and Trump-Russia collusion. And I plan on doing that. But before I do that, I just needed to mention a few other things in the news that involving Russia that are very, very scary. And again, barely getting any media coverage in the mainstream news. It's shocker. Um, and I say that both sarcastically and non-sarcastically because I'm genuinely shocked because of how dangerous these situations are and that we should all know about them, even people who don't, who just have a casual interest in the news, but also sarcastically shocked because this seems to be the norm now as some of the most hot scenarios involving these world conflicts are intentionally backpaged. And I find that very, very unsettling. Something about that is deeply unsettling. They still report on them, but they just sort of backpage them and kind of compartmentalize them. And this is another example of that is yesterday on the 13th, February 13th, from ABC News, Russia contractors killed by U.S. strike in Syria. An unknown number of private Russian military contractors were killed by a U.S. strike in Syria. Russian media reported Tuesday in a development that could further inflame Russia-U.S. tensions. Um, so yeah, you could probably understand why I'm frightened by this. This is deeply, deeply upsetting. And... Basically, the tone of the American media response to this is, oh, we don't know if any Russian contractors were killed. This could just be Russian propaganda. Uh, some reports are saying over 100 Russian contractors were killed. Is this an example, again, of the sort of Mike Morrell declaration that we need to be killing Iranians and Russians to teach them a lesson in Syria? Could be. I mean, at, right after he said that, and this is about a year ago, we tend to forget how awful and crazy these things and the frequency in which they're coming. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering when Mike Morrell said this on the Charlie Rose show and how only maybe like 
three weeks later, 60-something Syrian soldiers uh, fighting for Assad's army were killed in a U.S. airstrike when they thought, according to the U.S., they were shooting an ISIS target. Now, how believable is that? How believable is it to not be able to tell the difference between Assad's own army base or station position with Assad's army from an ISIS uh, stronghold? I just, I find that extremely hard to believe. And is this another instance where we are saying nothing, but then deliberately bombing Russians or people who are loyal to the Russian part of the equation? This is interesting as ABC News goes on to say, officials in both Moscow and Washington remain coy about the deaths, which would be an embarrassment for both countries if it turns out that Russian fighters were part of a unit that attacked a military force with American troops. Okay, so this it gets a little bit more interesting. Defense Secretary Mattis said Tuesday that Russia has told the U.S. there were no Russians in the area of the strike. Mattis said he saw the news reports about Russian contractors possibly being casualties of the bombing. Wow. His whole quote says, I don't have any reporting that some non-Russian Federation soldiers but Russian contractors are among the casualties. Mattis told reporters traveling with him in Europe, I can't give you anything on that. We have not received that word at Central Command or the Pentagon. So he's not confirming that any Russian contractors died. Now remember, Trump is president right now. There was not any instance during the Obama administration except that one quote-unquote accidental strike on the Syrian army that I just described that happened towards the end of his administration. There wasn't any other incident where they deliberately attacked the Syrian government or Assad's forces. Now that Trump is president, and I'm not saying Hillary wouldn't have done this because she probably would have, they are attacking Assad's forces. This is all going under the radar right now. And actually, this is important because it came up again in Chank and Kyle's debate about Russiagate in a really unpleasant way, where Kyle was trying to say, no, Trump is bombing Assad. He is escalating in Syria. He's not going along with sort of the Russian line. And, and, and the bombings, like I told you, those are totally nonsense, fake bombings. And and I don't agree, by the way. Oh, go really? Ahead. Come on, man. No, the new planes are sitting the there and they example. don't bomb them and they bomb the old planes that are already broken down. That's the going, look at me, daddy. I am against Putin and Assad. No, 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 no. But that's not the only time they bombed the Syrian government. There were four or five occasions where they bombed the Syrian government, even in the midst of them fighting ISIS one time they did it. So that's not anything to scoff at. So this should be proof that the pressure from the right that the resistance and Democrats are putting out to him is actually having harmful effects. But Kyle was like, no, Cenk, there is actually more of this happening recently that we are continuing. It's now, it's now become a sort of a, a thing that we're, we're going to keep doing to attack Assad's forces. This wasn't the only time, Cenk. And Cenk, just kind of brushed it off. He, he, and what was very revealing about that moment in the debate, I thought, is that Chank is not looking at a slightly lower level to this. He's only looking at like the headline sort of resistance media Democrat narratives, which is really problematic, especially when you're already getting accused by your people who defected from your audience as being a sellout sort of organization that's getting, de you know, Democratic donor money pumped into it that's selling out because of that.
it does re- sort of reflect that he is not looking for a deeper analysis on some of these situations. He is sort of going along with the flow on the Trump Russia investigation and the way that that's sort of being framed, not just in the mainstream media, but like sort of just in general neoliberal media. That's bad. Because the U.S. military said last week, and this is from ABC, it unleashed air and artillery barrage on the Syrian government-backed troops after some 300 attackers launched what appeared to be a coordinated assault on Syrian opposition forces accompanied by U.S. advisors in the province of Del Elzor. This is so fucking convoluted and nuts. What's happening here? So there was, an, a, there was a group of Syrian opposition forces... They were accompanied by U.S. advisors, like military personnel, and 300 Syrian government attackers, they claim, not soldiers, they just call them attackers, came in and attacked them, apparently. So the U.S. military unleashed an artillery barrage, air and artillery barrage, on the Syrian government in response. Just think about how fucking nuts that is. It said the U.S. strikes which reportedly killed about 100 of the attackers, were in self-defense. You have two dueling narratives. The Russian government is like stonewalling and obfuscating, obviously, just as much as the U.S. government is in in terms of what they're saying. I mean, they have two totally different narratives. It's hard to tell which one is true. I would say probably neither, but the one on the Russian side is probably more true. That would be my leaning. However... That doesn't mean that it's 100% true. Um, Just because I side with Russia more in this equation doesn't mean that I trust necessarily what their government says. I mean, most of the time, I'm sure they have some agenda or motive. The Russian Defense Ministry actually said that its troops weren't involved in the incident, saying that 25 Syrian volunteers were wounded in the U.S. strike. Without mentioning the U.S. strike... Sergei Lavrov noted Tuesday that Americans have taken dangerous unilateral steps. Those steps look increasingly as part of efforts to create a quasi-state on a large part of Syrian territory, from the eastern bank of the Euphrates River all the way to the border with Iraq, he said. I mean, gotta give it to Lavrov for, I mean, that's probably true. I was watching some more Victorian Newland footage recently. Uh, Robert Kagan's wife, a former assistant secretary for Eurasian affairs um, under Hillary Clinton for the State Department. Uh, She seems to have a particular bug up her ass about Lavrov because maybe because Lavrov is sort of operating on the same level as her and her husband, that he's very, very savvy and he understands a lot of the strategy. And when the time comes, he can actually call it very accurately even if he maybe has an agenda for doing so. I mean, that's, that's an extremely disturbing point that he's making. If we're trying to do that, that could sort of explain why we're both simultaneously talking about how Assad needs to go at some point, but then also simultaneously acting like we're not going to th- overthrow him and we just want to get rid of ISIS. We are trying to create like a mini state there. I would wager that it is probably what's happening. Now, I could probably talk for a whole other hour about that subject, but it's actually making me quite anxious. And it's just a very, very dark, we are essentially powerless to do anything. They're just false narratives running on all sides right now. You know, this idea that 
Trump is colluding with the Russians is primarily the criticism that's going after him right now. Nobody is really criticizing him from the left on his war stance that has a voice in in media. Nobody is saying that he shouldn't be escalating these conflicts in Syria. In fact, it's the opposite. People are trying to concern troll him, who are Democrats, into hurting Russians and Syrians even more. But I'm going to change the subject to, I guess, something a little lighter. It's really not. It's still anxiety-provoking because it is a fucking long term slow motion propaganda campaign that has infected almost every corner of social media, you know, YouTube commentary. I don't want to say left media, but more more like the left side of this media spectrum. Only there's only really a few holdouts left that I would consider actual people who are on the left side of the media spectrum who are not going along with this Russiagate narrative and who understand that it is rooted in sort of a propaganda myth similar to Iraq's WMDs. Right away off the bat, and you can go listen to the Chank uger kyle Kalinsky debate on YouTube if you want. I enjoyed parts of it. I was very frustrated but during other parts of it because I felt that even though Kyle was making some fantastic points and I thought that he was really keeping a cool head during it. And frankly, Chank wasn't. There was even a moment where Chank said, that's crazy talk. And Kyle was like, no, it's not. That's just factually accurate. I care deeply that how he got there, because that affects the next set of elections and the next set of elections, and whether we have a guy who is controlled by a foreign government. That is super important and relevant. So I like you don't care against against Putin. So how can if he did one policy for Putin, not implementing the election uh, meddling sanctions, but he did the five other ones I listed that were against. I don't think you can reasonably conclude he's his puppet. No, Kyle, that's crazy talk. So all right, I shouldn't say that. Okay, yeah, that's not anywhere near crazy. That's no accurate. (laughs) No, first of all, uh, you think. and then Chank immediately like apologized afterwards because he realized that he was the one losing his cool for just like blurting that out for no reason. Because Kyle was just like super chill during this. And hats off to Kyle. I don't see eye to eye with him on a, on certain issues. I feel that he does stay a little bit too much in the topical surface level range. Some of his deeper deeper analysis I think is really good. Others I I think reflects maybe a lack of understanding on certain things. And I get, and I guess I'll start by criticizing Kyle's approach. Um, even though I definitely think he won the debate, uh, he's definitely uh, probably one of my favorite people who's associated with TYT still. Um, I don't really have, I don't see much fault in what he's doing. He just doesn't go in as deep or as left or as radical as I prefer. But in terms of his regular, just general approach, I think it's mostly good, um, and it's good. It's really good that he, that his popularity has climbed. I've I've watched it over the years. You know, I think he started around the same time we started doing our podcast, maybe even a little later. So he's really blown up since then, um, and he deserves it. Like he's got a really clean presentation. It's it's cut nicely. Um, it, I mean, I don't even know if he really edits it. It's just the segments are nice and short. They're not rambly like me. 
so yeah, just wanted to front load my critique of him with, with some praise because sometimes I am a little bit too harsh on other people sort of in the left scene who are not on the same page as me necessarily, but Kyle seems like a good guy to me. Um, and I, I appreciate what he does. So when it comes to sort of his approach in this debate with Chank, I thought he made a, a big mistake initially. Kyle seemed to want to frame the debate differently than Chank at first. Instead of Russia collusion, what about collusion and money laundering in general? That he is guilty of those things, but not any more necessarily like having to do with Russia, that he's actually more... You know, we can tra trace a, sh uh, a straight line more from, say, uh, Saudi Arabia collusion with Trump and bribery because of, for example, paying all this money to his hotel chain and then getting this big weapons deal back from the Trump administration. So Kyle was trying to make the argument that that should be the focus yeah. So it, you know, I, again, I support what Mueller's doing and what do you do? Knocked out Flynn, knocked out Manafort. See, Kyle was like, yeah, I'm glad they got knocked out. I'm glad Mueller's going to knock out more people like one by one for just these corruption scandals. But he's like, but it's not about Russia. Now, right off the bat, my, my problem with that was, okay, so you're not even bringing up the fact that the Russia stuff having to do with Flynn and Manafort actually wasn't that big of a deal, which I think Kyle should have done which it still doesn't imply this level of collusion or anything like that. I also was disappointed that Kyle did not mention that Robert Mueller has a history of covering up for on behalf of administrations. Um, I was disappointed that Kyle seemed so okay with Mueller and his sort of standing and his... The perception of, that Kyle had of Robert Mueller being an ethical character was surprising to me based on what I've heard Kyle talk about before, knowing how corrupt the FBI has been, um, especially Mueller. And this is the thing I think that certain people on the left have ignored because of a lot of people's fear of touching anything remotely 9-11 conspiracy, 9-11 truth related, is I don't know if Kyle has looked into the fact that Robert Mueller actively covered up Saudi involvement in the 9-11 attacks. I don't know if Kyle has has looked into the fact that Robert Mueller was running the FBI during the Amerithrax investigation, and that that's one of the most insane, blatant cover-ups and misdirections in the FBI's history. In fact, it was their most expensive, apparently one of their most expensive long-term investigations ever in their history. And it resulted in no charges being filed against a man who happened to kill himself before any charges could be filed. And they previously were doing what they call bumper lock surveillance, which is a surveillance designed to intimidate you, make you scared and paranoid on an innocent man named Stephen Hatfill, who later won a lawsuit against the FBI for $6 million for harassment. The FBI basically tried to frame him. Robert Mueller um, apparently was the one who was suggesting using dubious law enforcement methods to sort of smear him in public. Basically, one of them involved having the FBI go on TV and say they used bloodhounds to track a scent from the letters to his apartment. 
not that doesn't hold up in court even that that's that's like almost like hiring a psychic if you're uh, a police detective um it really shows desperation it was a pr stunt this is the kind of stuff robert mueller was authorizing the only good thing robert mueller did was he didn't come out and say that al-qaeda or saddam hussein sent the anthrax but he could have come out and said that it had a fingerprints from the U.S. government on it when they knew. See, Robert Mueller was aware of the fact that very quickly they identified it as the AIM strain, which meant that it was the U.S. weaponized strain of anthrax, and that it likely came from inside the U.S. government. I mean, sorry, inside a U.S. government lab, which it eventually that's what the FBI concluded. Robert Mueller didn't broadcast this information he didn't bother to inform the public so if the public knew that back when he knew that the head of the fbi knew that the anthrax did not come from saddam hussein or al-qaeda we probably there was a chance that we might have been able to prevent going into iraq meaning that colin powell wouldn't have been dumb enough to hold up that fucking vial of fake anthrax the u.n speech because Robert Mueller would have put a chink in that armor. Even though all Robert Mueller would have been doing is telling the truth. Think about that for a second. Richard Lambert, the lead investigator on the Amerithrax case, later sued Robert Mueller um, and several other government officials. By the time he sued, uh, it was when Obama was in office. So he basically saw Obama's administration as complicit in a continuing cover-up of the Amerithrax case. Robert uh, Richard Lambert, the lead investigator on this case, sued Robert Mueller and Eric Holder and other people, but specifically in the lawsuit, I mean, the, the generality of the lawsuit is that he alleges that the FBI covered up evidence and hid evidence, omitted evidence, that could have proved that Bruce Ivins was innocent. Bruce Ivins is the man who killed himself that the FBI is now blaming after his death as being the culprit of the 2001 anthrax attacks that killed five people. Richard Lambert, in his lawsuit, is alleging that Robert Mueller's FBI was basically withholding evidence and withholding it from even him that could have proven Bruce Ivan's innocence, and they're still withholding it to this day. In the lawsuit, he specifically alleges that Robert Mueller did what he describes as stovepiping evidence. That means what I basically what I just said. So he directly accuses Robert Mueller of only showing evidence that made it seem like Bruce Ivins was guilty, but not showing other evidence that could have proved his innocence. Robert Mueller doing this to the lead investigator in the case, that's an extremely corrupt thing to do. That shows a political motivation to tie a nice little ribbon around this case for some reason. wonder why they would want to do that. For anybody who's been listening to this podcast for long enough, I think you already know the answer to that. And Colleen Rowley, um, 9-11 whistleblower, uh, is also one of the people that has alleged um, that Robert Mueller essentially cut his teeth um, as FBI director covering up 9-11. The very first investigation opened into 9-11 was from the FBI. Robert Mueller had only been working there, I think, for... I believe only a few days before 9-11. 
normally I would kind of cringe at a headline like this, but I think in this case it's actually extremely accurate. And the the real news called this segment special counsel investigating Trump campaign has deep ties to the deep state. And that is absolutely correct. Um Colleen Rally alleges that he uh covered up the pre-9-11 role of U.S. intelligence agencies and the Bush administration and helped create the post-9-11 national security surveillance state and also helped facilitate the pre-Iraq war propaganda machine. So this is completely apart from the anthrax, but you can also factor in the anthrax investigation into that because it was purposely botched in order to extent to, A, to cover up the fact that it had U.S. fingerprints on it, and the FBI knew that very, very early on. And then B, to kind of just bury it and to actually apparently stovepipe information so that the actual investigators on the ground and even the lead investigator didn't have access to the information. And the FBI and U.S. government were willing to throw pretty much unlimited supplies of money at that investigation, all to end up as a complete shit show that... Not even mainstream journalists seem to believe. I mean, Patrick Leahy, one of the guys targeted with it, seems to not believe it at all, the FBI's investigations. He, he really did grill Mueller one time about it at an official hearing. And just as a side note, uh, this is not something Colleen Rowley talks about in this segment, but the original 9-11 investigation opened by the FBI was called Pent Bomb. And that's been confirmed by multiple sources, actually by Robert Mueller himself. It's interesting that the FBI suggested through leaks on TV networks during the day of 9-11 that they thought explosives were in the building. And this is apparently from FBI sources leaking to the media. So it's interesting that they would have called it Pent Bomb investigation on the day of 9-11. That was what the FBI called the investigation. Robert Mueller also apparently has covered up the Saudi role, as I mentioned earlier, in 9-11. Um, Judicial Watch and a lot of kind of more right-leaning websites have ran with the story, but it does check out. Um, on Judicial Watch, the headline is, FBI Director Mueller helped cover up Florida 9-11 probe court documents show. And these court documents is the ongoing lawsuit between 9-11 families and the government of Saudi Arabia. And apparently in some of these court documents, um, I'll read you just a section of it. So this is really interesting. So the documents in court reveal that Mueller tried to cover up the connection between a Florida Saudi family and the 9-11 terrorist attacks. But more interesting than just that, how he, how he covered it up. As it says from this Judicial Watch article, the documents reveal that Mueller was likely involved in publicly releasing deceptive official agency statements about a secret, secret investigation of the Saudis who lived in Sarasota. Under Mueller's leadership, the FBI tried to discredit the story, publicly countering that agents found no connection between the Sarasota Saudi family and the 2001 terrorist plot. The reality is that the FBI's own files contain several reports that said the opposite, according to the Fort Lauderdale-based news group ongoing investigation. So basically, Mueller, I mean, these documents allege that Mueller was directly involved in spreading a disinformation campaign to take journalists away from the Saudi trail of 
Well, unfortunately, I don't know how, you know, open Kyle is to this kind of information, but if Kyle maybe knew these things beforehand about the anthrax attacks or about Robert Mueller's, um, you know, covering up the Saudi role in 9-11, he might have a different opinion of Robert Mueller. So that framing right, right off the bat was problematic for me. So I feel like Kyle, he let his guard down a little bit at the very beginning. And he gave Chankin in by basically saying and admitting that there was Russian money, money laundering that was serious and admitting that he wants to see like people get knocked out like Flynn and Manafort. He's glad to see them go. Even though if he's maybe right on that, just in terms of that they're generally corrupt, he did not make enough of a point to say, well, it wasn't over really the Russia stuff, but they still needed to go. And I felt that that was an important moment for him to do that right off the bat. But Chank, one of his biggest trump cards of the of the whole thing, and and keep in mind, and I just wanted this is this is sort of an aside of the whole thing. But keep in mind that RussiaGate and this idea of Trump collusion originally had to do with this idea that Trump was somehow working with WikiLeaks, who was getting leaks from the Russian government through a hack of the DNC to ruin Hillary Clinton's campaign. That's sort of how all this sort of started, building in the media. Even though they've never proved that at all, at all, not even close. That was the foundation for a lot of this that's happening now. So now we're at this point where even the debate between Chank and Kyle it's not even like mentioned. There's not even a debate within this debate about, well, did Russia hack the DNC and pass these emails to WikiLeaks or not? Because seemingly Kyle either concedes that point. Unfortunately, I'm led to make the conclusion that perhaps Kyle does think that that's what happened. That maybe not the Trump part. Sorry, I added on that little Trump part having to do with the three-way connection between Russian government, Trump, and WikiLeaks. Let's just isolate it to Russian government working with WikiLeaks to distribute these emails. I don't remember Kyle bringing up the fact that there is no forensic evidence for that happening. There is no evidence for that happening. Chank, however, doesn't really bring it up either until... What, you know, it was actually strange is Chank. Chank conceded that he doesn't even think the emails play an important role in it because... He thought they should have been released, and it didn't have that much of an effect on the election anyways. But I think Chink did kind of brush over the fact that he does think Russia hacked them and distributed them to WikiLeaks. Kyle didn't really push back on that, and that's, I guess, more what my complaint is. Even though Chink kind of threw that argument out the window and it was barely brought up during the debate as an important factor. But Chink you know, brought up this idea of this Dutch article that came out recently, or maybe, sorry, it was Dutch investigators claimed that they had film footage showing in Russia hacking into the DNC emails. This is all very, very, uh, this is all very convoluted narrative. Adam uh, Carter of the Forensicator is his website. He's done a very, very good job of pulling all this apart there's a whole other side of it, the Guccifer 2.0 angle, which a lot of people used as the connection point between WikiLeaks and the Russian government. He's done a lot of debunking of that, but he's also done a lot of pulling apart of Fancy Bear, you know, Cozy Bear, all these different things that CrowdStrike alleges. 
you really have to look at deep analysis of it to really understand how this is really built on a house of cards. This narrative that the Russian government hacked the DNC and these emails is what swayed the election. Because even though they blasted us with a bunch of like bullshit, like from CrowdStrike and all those security firms originally trying to prove that, they they themselves, the, the neoliberals, the Democrats, the resistance, they themselves have dropped that narrative, which says something about the strength of that narrative. Either it's not important anymore, or it wasn't true, or they know it wasn't true, or maybe it just lost its usefulness and they're just moving on to something else now. But it's interesting how far away this has moved from that original allegation. Some like quasi-intellectual like NPR guy will be like, well, that's how a criminal investigation works. If you have foregone conclusions about you know, what, the, what took place here, then it's not a real investigation. So Robert Mueller is just following the leads, and then the news is following those leads. But that's not really what's happening here. This it does feel very artificially driven. This does feel like it's some kind of weird gaslighting the media is still trying to do to convince the public that this is all really happening when what is really happening, it's kind of an amorphous, continually morphing narrative about what, to what level Trump is colluding with the Russian government. Is he a Manchurian candidate? Is it just about kickbacks? Is he compromised from a PP tape? I mean, all of these different things are thrown out there, but none of them are actually forming to form like a fully coherent narrative. It's very interesting. Uh, on the other hand, Estonia is now, whether it was right to do in the first place or not, is part of NATO. So if Russia goes into Estonia, it's incredibly important that we protect Estonia. Otherwise, our treaties don't mean anything. So, so then you would potentially do World War III to protect nah, you Estonia? See that, then I told you, you lose me on that. World War III is really hyperbolic, super hyperbolic. So this is where Cenk sort of uses appeal to ridicule. Um, I mean, that's kind of pretty much exactly what he just did. How is it hyperbolic? Sort of this mocking tone that Chank is using to suggest that, you know, responding to, let's say if like a NATO or an Estonian troop got killed or something like on doing like a patrol on the Russian border, that it's our duty to respond to that. And that things like that could escalate into World War III. Chank is saying that that's hyperbolic. It's just, it's simply not. It's really unfortunate that Chank takes this position because he is pretty much sounding a lot like Victoria Newland or Robert Kagan right here, saying that, well, our treaties won't mean anything if we don't, like, you know, respond to when NATO is in, under threat. But that's the whole point is that we've made it so that so many goddamn countries now, all these former Soviet bloc countries, are now NATO members that. If Russia does anything at all, pretty much on their, even on their borders, it could be used as an escalation for a conflict with Russia, sort of on the NATO side. I just find it very interesting that Chink is taking this point of view just in general, because I wouldn't really take him for like a nationalist or someone who's like really patriotic in terms of believing in American's, America's right to be like hegemonic. But NATO, he's kind of like having this lackadaisical attitude toward like, well, whether you like NATO's existence or not, we do have these treaties and we were we are obligated to follow them. 
that position just seems very weak to me. I mean, where, like, we, this is the time to actually debate about why we have these NATO obligations. Like, why did we even set the, all that shit up in the 90s? Most of these countries were added to NATO in the 90s. That was when the Soviet Union had already collapsed. Why, why were we doing that? Were we sort of hedging on the fact that we could use the Russia as a scapegoat again and just surround them and try to just try to egg them into some kind of conflict eventually? I mean, it, to me, it, if I'm going to be completely honest, does seem kind of Machiavellian in a sort of PNAC sort of way. So like whenever, like sometimes some folks on the left, you like get into a situation of what should we do about Russia, sanctions, not sanctions, etc. Boom, World War III card, right? Well, so so I you can do things further. about the, his incursion into Georgia, Ukraine, and Estonia short of launching nukes. Well, right, but again, if we're if we're what we're doing right now is we have a NATO buildup on his border, and that's like if Russian troops all of a sudden were right on the border of Mexico. Every single politician in the U.S. would say, "Get the guns ready." It's time to fight back. But for some reason, when we put NATO troops directly on his border, that's viewed as like, oh, my God, if you're against that, you're a Putin puppet. And that's, No, that's no, I don't think you're a Putin puppet. I don't think anybody's a Putin puppet in, in that regard. But, um, but And if you say, hey, maybe we should have Estonia, Latvia, etc. withdraw from NATO, that's an interesting argument. Uh, but, but it's a different thing to not defend Estonia if they are part of NATO. So Chank is basically just going back to the same framing that he used before, where he's acting like because Estonia are part of NATO, that we have the like obligation to protect them if they're attacked, which is still kind of like a PNAC neocon pipe dream like fantasy scenario. This even this idea that Estonia is somehow Russia is breathing down their neck and is going to attack. I mean, the president of Estonia has put out a lot of this kind of rhetoric actually in the past few years. Jamie Kerchick sort of befriended him at one point. Jamie Kerchick being Project for the New American Century 2.0 fellow. Um, and I really don't think that a lot of the things he said could be taken that seriously. He's sort of been used as a tool for this sort of NATO, uh, DC think tank circuit, uh, you know, anti-Russian sentiment of this, this wave. And I just find it interesting that, again, that Chank is sort of buying into a lot of this framing that, I mean, I guess it's more obvious to me, maybe not as much to him, because I've looked very closely and very, you know, specifically at think tanks and the papers that they were writing from like 2014, 2013, 2015, that, you know, really made some alarming claims about Estonia. They really wanted to make that a talking point, and I guess it kind of worked on Chank. That's unfortunate. Um, but this other thing about incursions into Ukraine and Georgia, the Georgian so-called incursion, what is very debatable, actually, what happened. Saakishvili was the um, Georgian president at the time, and he basically was like a neocon puppet who was put in power there. And he's been uh, brought up on all these corruption charges and is extremely corrupt. And there was a lot of evidence that he tried to stoke a conflict with Russia on purpose. And there's a lot of propaganda coming out through U.S. media stuff saying that Russia was like bombing all these targets in Georgia and stuff. It never actually happened. You know, the Ukraine thing is a little more complicated to break apart. But once again, 
um, it was obvious that the U.S. was meddling in that. And that there's also evidence that people involved in the Georgian government were meddling in it, too. I'm not saying that what Russia did in Ukraine was great, um, but at the same time, it's a lot more complex than the narratives that's coming that are coming through the U.S. media. So to have this concept that Cenk is sort of framing it around this idea that Russia is kind of an expansionist nation and it's looking to expand beyond its borders, I think there's very little evidence of that. Well, let me just say, I'm, I'll just go on the record now and say I, I would not uh, send U.S. troops to fight to protect Estonia. And you could say that means I'm weak on Russia or whatever the case is. Sorry, but I don't think, yes, potentially risking, I'm not saying it would lead to World War III, but if we get into some sort of a hot war over Estonia, I don't think it's worth it to send you know men and women from Kentucky who never heard of Estonia until three and a half minutes ago to maybe fight and die to protect them. I agree with Kyle here, but I feel that he is conceding some of the argument in the sense that his he's letting the chanks framing sort of def, uh, frame this to to too much of a degree um, because like I was just saying this idea that Russia is an expansionist nation is looking to invade Georgia or Estonia or Latvia or any of these other countries or Germany you know even Robert Kagan um, you know acts like Russia is a threat to Europe as a whole, just like, you know, just full stop. That's the framing in which this is talked about. But Kyle is right in the sense that um, even even if you do believe we have those sort of obligations, we should break them because it's not worth the risk. Um, So I agree with him sort of within that framing. But I do think Kyle is sort of showing a little bit of his lack of knowledge here on the way that this has been built up, sort of this false narrative that Russia is somehow a threat to Ukraine um, to um, and all these other Eastern European countries. To do it because we need to find out if the president is working for us or working for a different country. That's monumentally important. So I can't say, well, I kind of like some of his policies in that regard. So, eh, right? No, not eh. I, but I, then you're abandoning the money laundering thing you said, though, because originally you said, well, look, this is really just about money laundering. But now you just said, like, no, we need to keep investigating to see if he's working for a foreign country. Now, when I hear that, I think that's really goofy and that's not what's happening. He's not Putin's puppet. Like, no, that's that's definitely silly. we have like the heart of the disagreement. Yeah, so, I, I think he did money laundering. You think he's a puppet to Vladimir Putin. No, I think he did money laundering. <laughs> And hence, he's a puppet to Vladimir Putin. Well, I think this is really where Chanks, just where his head has been at for a while, is just sort of laid bare. I mean, you you heard it. I mean, that he really does think that Trump is a Manchurian candidate in sort of the sense that he is a puppet because of some kind of money laundering deals or kickbacks or bribes that occurred between Trump and Russian oligarchs and perhaps people in the connected to the Russian government. But earlier, there was also this notion that Chank threw out there that Russian oligarchs all answer to Putin as well. And one of the, uh, the criminal deals that he made, if we're right about that, and hence the need for the investigation, is a deal with Russian oligarchs who all work for Vladimir Putin. It's like saying that all American oligarchs are beholden to the American government, or that all Russian hackers are beholden to the Russian government. So this, like, without even making the distinction between the two. 
And there are some, you know, Trump money laundering examples with Russia and a lot of other countries as well. And that's the argument that Kyle was trying to make is, yes, there is some some of that with Russia, but there's that with a lot of other countries also that are more clear cut and in some instances way worse. So why are we focusing on Russia? No, this is this is definitely the crux of our disagreement, because, listen, what I would say is even after hearing all that, I still don't for the life of me understand why what wouldn't be put front and center is the collusion that Trump did with a foreign government which led to weapons being sold to them and a genocide being carried out with those weapons. Because even if I grant you everything you just said, we already have all the evidence on the table for an even worse case of collusion. But again, there's a reason why that's not the issue being brought up. And the issue being brought up is the Russia issue, because look, the the deep state and all of the politicians don't care that we did Israel's bidding and there were corrupt deals in the process done to try to get other countries to not care about illegal settlements under international law. That's a giant scandal. And they don't care that our weapons are currently funding a genocide in Yemen. They don't care because they're our allies. So we look the other way. And even though there's an even clearer example of a corrupt deal and Trump doing the bidding of those governments, it doesn't even register. But the, the final thing, Jenk, that I wanted to talk about. But the, see, the question that Kyle doesn't get a deeper answer to or doesn't dive deeper on is why Russia? It's because we have been looking to p- pivot in a more hostile direction with Russia for several years. We have been slowly ramping up to it. And by we, I mean the U.S. government, sort of the deep state apparatus, the blob, a bunch of different factions in D.C. have been wanting to do this for a long time. And now the neoliberals and neocons have sort of joined up together in the most blatant way possible to hammer away on this narrative day in and day out. That's really why the focus is on Russia. That's why. The election of Donald Trump was an emotional trauma for a large part of the American public, including the D.C. class. So it's, it, it, it traumatized the D.C. class and a large sector of the American people most notably Democrats and people on the left side of the spectrum. It was the perfect opportunity to enable this hostile pivot that they have been aiming towards for years. Just to wrap up this segment of the show, um, I'll play the last point that Kyle makes, which I think is a very good one, Um, but it's kind of amusing which RT reporters he chooses to pick as the as the ones that are obviously not mouthpieces of Vladimir Putin, because one of them doesn't work for RT and hasn't for, I think, at least a year. Um, so take a listen. This is having a chilling effect on us because, for example, uh, YouTube just decided we're going to label uh, all outlets that are funded by foreign governments. And the idea is they're trying to scare people off of looking at certain outlets. So for like Tom Hartman works for RT. Ed Schultz works for RT. These are people who are not Vladimir Putin's mouthpieces, but they work for RT. And now there's a warning banner across the screen. Look at the effect this is having. Like, for example, uh, ever since they say, hey, Russian fake news affected the election in a negative way, we really need to take action on this. They change the algorithms. Google and YouTube change the algorithms. And now they deprioritize all independent creators, and they put an onus on outlets that are established outlets, corporate outlets, CNN, MSNBC, and all those kinds of outlets. 
So this is a point that basically, I won't even bother playing you the clip, but Chank essentially agrees with Kyle on this point, and he thinks that it is bad politics to vote for the Democrats to be focusing on Russia this much. But he says he also thinks that they should continue the Russia investigation, and he does think that Trump is Putin's puppet. I guess that's a little bit better of a position than Rachel Maddow or some of these neoliberals, but it just, it's very disappointing because TYT itself has spent a lot of time um, pushing this, you know, pushing this narrative. And I guess since it's a real investigation now, you can't argue with the fact that it's, that it's actual new, it's newsworthy content. It's act, it's in the news cycle and TYT in general tends to, report on a lot of stuff that's already in the news cycle but i'm glad that they have that they still hire people like kyle you know i think they even still hire jimmy Dore, even though there's some drama going on apparently between them jimmy Dore and chank right now i i guess um you can you can look it up on youtube um i don't really know exactly what's going on there it seems like jimmy Dore is throwing a lot of fire towards Cenk Uger indirectly from his own show and stuff like that. And, you know, maybe there's some stuff brewing behind the scenes, but I can understand why he'd be really frustrated. But at the same time, you know, Jimmy Dore doesn't have a perfect record either. And uh, just, and I should have put this up at the front as a disclaimer, but just for the, just so people know who are listening out there, I'm not reflecting any of Abby's own opinions as I'm talking. Um, we are two separate individuals with, different opinions and uh abby is not vetting this podcast either before it goes out um so whatever i'm saying about jimmy Dore, chank kyle totally my own opinion um does not reflect media roots as a brand or anything like that i i don't watch a whole lot of tyt anymore let's just put it that way i used to watch it more but i was never i never was a big uh viewer of the show in general so I know there's a lot of people out there who feel that it's a big sellout network now and stuff like that, but I, I guess I just see it differently because I never saw it as this necessarily this beacon of of hope and, and the faith that a lot of people had put behind it as being like this like a really, really important organization. So anyway, so I guess just to wrap up the podcast in general, the only topics I wanted to talk about besides this were sort of I guess tabloidy stuff that you've already been hearing about in the mainstream media. The Stormy Daniels thing is mildly interesting. None of it's surprising at all. The most surprising part is that I guess that Trump's lawyer is as actually admitting now to giving a, a six-figure payout. I think it's something to the tune of two hundred thousand dollars to Stormy Daniels to basically shut her mouth. And he's claiming he didn't do it on behalf of Trump, that he did it because he didn't want to see Trump's reputation harmed. So he's basically legalese style admitting to doing it on behalf of Trump, but Trump didn't instruct him to do it. So that's really just obvious bullshit. And it's also obvious that Trump was having an affair with her and was probably basically just like renting her as some kind of long-term prostitute. I mean, that seems to be what the arrangement would be, some kind of sugar daddy situation at best, as, as what I'm imagining it to be. But, you know, whatever, that's his, his business. You know, he could do that if, if he wants to. He's a powerful billionaire. I'm sure 
that's not that uncommon when you're that powerful and rich. I mean, even Charlie Sheen was living with uh, porn stars that he said that he wanted to meet based on just watching their porn. So if Charlie Sheen can do that, then think about what a billionaire could do. So that's really all I'll spend on that. Some people have brought up the fact that Stormy Daniels looks kind of like Ivanka Trump. Um, That's creepy. Make of that what you will. And then, well, I guess also Trump told Stormy one time that he reminded her of his daughter. So that actually is apparently something that she claimed um, about their interactions together. So that actually does make it more creepy now that I think about it. Rob Porter is another person that Trump is just completely defending, balls to the wall defending. He's accused of spousal abuse. Um, his ex-wife posted some horrific photos and got interviewed in a bunch of publications. Got just all over the media. Trump administration is totally stonewalling on that, claiming that Trump even tweeted out, give him due process. And then it came out later during this that Trump used to call Steve Bannon while he was still in the White House, Bam Bam, because of his domestic abuse allegations in that lawsuit where um, Steve Bannon was accused of jumping over the couch to hang up the phone while the wife was trying to call 911 and uh, strangling her. So, yeah, Trump administration just continues to, just, you know, it gets more and more disgusting, but it's just like desensitizing how disgusting and shocking it is. It's not shocking, really, at all. Those were really only the topics I wanted to touch on, you know, the tabloidy ones. The other ones have to do more with personalities. I guess I'll just do this now, get it out of the way. There's this author named Caitlin Johnstone, and anyone who follows me on Twitter or, you know, has listened to this podcast knows that I have a problem with her, specifically when she used to call on a regular basis for an alliance between alt-right figureheads like Mike Cernovich and Jack Posobiec with so-called anti-imperialists. She wanted to fight the deep state together with people like that because she claimed that they were also anti-war and that there were all these people on the right who were anti-war. Now, while she might be right about the fact that there are people on the right who are anti-war, there's definitely a problematic, to put it mildly, thread going through all of her work that sort of tries to create this Big Ten approach to include Trump supporters and sort of disaffected Democrat, you know, Bernie supporter type people. And while maybe that's a noble intention in her mind to do that, she has just a very obvious misunderstanding of this sort of social climate in the United States and just the domestic politics here. I'm not saying it's because she's Australian that she doesn't understand American politics very well, but she just seems very out of touch. She refers to herself as a progressive feminist, but at the same time, she's very out of touch with sort of the sort of the left pulse in the United States. But to her, she might claim that it's because the left pulse is all about Russiagate right now or whatever. You know, but that's not true. There's a lot of people on the left who are extremely anti-imperialist, who are anti-Syrian intervention, anti-Russiagate, you know, Russiagate, um, who don't think that Mike Cernovich and Jack Posobiec and Cassandra Fairbanks are anti-imperialists. And the problem is Caitlin Johnson is still associating with these people on a regular basis on Twitter. She's they retweet her. She talks to them on Twitter. You can see all their interactions together. Um, she's not trying to hide this fact. Her stuff is extremely viral, and I think it puts down a very watered-down, clickbaity narrative 
it's a cut and paste and mix and match of stuff from consortium news, zero hedge, um, websites like that about Russiagate. And she sort of puts her own personal spin on it. The only reason I bring her up is because she's been, I guess, going after me in her podcast because she thinks that I'm somehow responsible for starting the ball rolling on some kind of hate campaign against her. She claims it's just some kind of hate campaign, but she doesn't seem to address why people on the left dislike her so much. Someone I also wanted to talk about was uh, Jordan Peterson, who is getting a lot of popularity right now. And I guess I would wager it's because of his appearances on the Joe Rogan podcast. And I wouldn't even call him a figurehead because he's not an alt-right guy. In fact, he's very critical of certain aspects of the alt-right. He's also very pro-psychedelics. He's also Catholic, I believe. Or maybe he's Protestant. I'm, I'm not exactly sure about that last part. But he's definitely not an atheist. So he's this interesting figure in the sense that he got really popular for standing up to this Canadian legislation that I guess was only applied to university campuses in Canada that made you made it against the rules or maybe even against the law to use a certain to not use people's preferred gender pronouns. At least that was Jordan Peterson's claim, the way I've just framed it. I'm actually not really sure what the legislation or what this law or proposed legislation actually would have done. I'm I, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, maybe somebody listening out there can help me on that. But it seemed like he kind of martyred himself over this idea of removing free, more free speech rights in Canada over this um, gender pronoun thing, the PC police, but what he calls cultural Marxism and postmodernism infecting the modern world. You know, we can get into a whole talk about why the idea of cultural Marxism is a total silly, kind of like John Birch society era construct but i'd rather just touch on the fact that canada in general doesn't have a first amendment doesn't have free speech laws like the united states does one really good example of this um is a comedian a french canadian comedian known as mike ward um this is from an article in dun 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 vice news it's actually a pretty good article, though, um, when it comes to their non-foreign policy stuff, um, as long as it's not some kind of like weird, uh, toxic masculinity ramble or you know something about drugs. I'm, I'll read their stuff sometimes. Basically, the article says, uh, headline is, a comedian was ordered to pay $42,000 because he insulted a child with a disability. This is from 2016. Mike Ward is planning to fight a decision ordering him to pay tens of thousands of dollars to a child singer with disabilities who was the butt of one of his jokes. I'm disappointed and a little embarrassed to be Canadian. On the world stage, we look like a bunch of buffoons that can't tell the difference between comedy, artistic expression, and real life, Ward told Vice News. We are going to appeal. The ruling passed down by the Quebec Human Rights Tribunal requires Ward to pay 25000 in moral damages and 10000 in punitive damages to Jeremy Gabriel, who suffers from Treacher-Collins syndrome, a condition that causes effects the development of bones and tissue in the face. For a joke he made about him at a show in 2010, the CBC reported. 
Ward has also been ordered to pay $5,000 in moral damages and $2,000 in punitive damages to Gabriel's mother, Sylvie Gabriel. The tribunal sided with Gabriel, ruling that Ward had infringed on his right to have his disability, honor, and reputation safeguarded without discrimination, rejecting Ward's defense that there was a clear difference between harassment against a person and an artistic work being produced before a willing audience. And the actual joke, if you want to hear it. So this is, this is like sort of the weight behind it. He says, so the joke was, but five years later, he wasn't dead. He's not dying. He quipped on stage. The little bastard, he's just not dying. Gabriel couldn't be killed, Ward continued, joking that he'd unsuccessfully tried to drown him once. And then when he looked up Gabriel's condition online, he found that it was being ugly. I mean, that's a pretty extremely harsh joke. I mean, I don't, it's, to me, it's not very funny, but it should be protected under free speech laws. But apparently Canada doesn't protect them because this guy owes $42,000. Jordan Peterson is acting like he's some kind of, you know, he's having his rights infringed upon and he's making this big deal about it. But in reality, Canada has had a problem with just free speech in general for a long time. And a comedian getting fined a bunch of money by the Canadian government for saying something like that is a way bigger deal than what Jordan Peterson is suggesting might happen. Because it's not happened yet, to my knowledge, that anybody's gotten in trouble with the law for doing something, not using someone's preferred gender pronouns. But I find him an interesting character because... A lot of people who aren't alt-right, who are more just sort of in the center or even left, center-left, kind of find his ideas attractive um, and really seem drawn to him. Um, and I do think it sort of speaks to sort of the Joe Rogan nexus where there's a lot of people on the left, uh, maybe, or Democrats or whatever, who listen to Joe Rogan and get inspired by a lot of these people, the guests he has on. So what's been happening recently is I think a lot more people have started to call Joe Rogan out from the left um, on the fact that he has on quite a, you know, quite a high percentage of conservative right-wing political people. Um, he has on a lot of celebrities. He has on a lot of comedians. He has on, on a lot of scientists interesting people in general most of the people he has on i don't really know what their politics are probably a lot of the celebrities and comedians tend to lean left more democrat probably some of the scientists tend to lean more liberal but when they're when he has those guests on he doesn't talk really about politics but see the thing is i would say about 90 percent of his political guests that come on to talk about politics to talk about political issues um, are conservative. And that's something that people have started to pick up on more. Um, I would say probably one of the only left people that he has on to come and talk about politics is Abby, um, my sister, um, which is pretty cool that he still has someone like Abby on and he's had her on quite a few times. Um, there's a lot of comedians out there who I know, um, complain still. I listened to some podcasts uh, that they haven't had them on yet, even on his podcast. So the fact that he likes Abby and has him on his podcast is, is pretty awesome. So, you know, I can't fault him for 
you know, just being, you know, I can't say he's just like a right winger or anything like that. I don't, I don't think that he is. I just think that recently he does seem to be more drawn to these conservative guests. Um, and it's been very disappointing for me um, because, you know, occasionally I would, I would tune into his podcast because he had on some like more interesting conspiracy type people. He's drifted away a little more from the conspiracy thing and more to like the skeptic thing. Um, you know, he's gotten really into Sam Harris and stuff who, of course, I'm a huge, uh, anti fan of as listeners of this podcast know. So, you know, I, my, my sort of interest in his podcast has declined. Um, but recently people have been noticing this and fighting sort of against the narrative that he puts out that he's just like trying to hear from both sides and have a debate, et cetera. When in reality, he really doesn't have any people on to talk about politics from the left hardly at all I mean very very rarely so he sort of engaged on his social media which credit to him for doing this to get people from the left to come on his show and two of the people that he agreed to have on his show uh, from the left are two people who are sort of satellites of TYT Jimmy Dore um, who I already mentioned from earlier and and Kyle Kalinske, um, who who was in the debate with Chank Uger that that we played clips of earlier, um, and that's great. You know, it's it's good that that Joe Rogan had him on his show. I watched the segment. I thought some of it was good. Um, I didn't like some of it, um, but you know, I think it's it's a good sign that Joe is more more open to this. So hopefully, in the future, he'll have you know, who'll have on some, some other people, you know, besides Abby. Yeah. I just wanted to put that out there that that's, that's happening. That's a good development. And that's pretty much it. I don't really have much more to say. Well, I hope you enjoyed this solo episode of Media Roots Radio. In our next episodes will be an interview with Yasha Levine, Pando Valley journalist. Um, well, journalist in general. I don't know, even know if he would want me to use that title for him actually he wrote this excellent book called surveillance valley um that's about basically the origins of the internet as a military spying apparatus um and and how it's evolved to today uh and it's ties into silicon valley as well hence the title um and then we also have an episode with myself and abby um, coming out um, after this one so stay tuned for those and you will also be getting an additional episode at the end of the month that one is going to be a surprise we'll we'll let you know fairly soon what that one's going to be about please go to our patreon page patreon.com slash media roots radio and consider donating we have multiple donation tiers anywhere from one dollar two dollars five dollars ten dollars we really appreciate the donations we've gotten so far they really help this podcast keep going thank you so much 